This is the Disciple Makers Podcast by Discipleship.org. You're listening to Season 7, and every week this season we bring you content about making disciples. Discipleship.org brings together other like-minded organizations, and we're all focused on making disciples. Our goal is to help you become a Jesus-styled disciple maker. Today's podcast features Discipleship.org partner, Global Discipleship Initiative, and their track at the National Forum called Turning Your Church into a Disciple-Making Mission. The track relates to what can be called church culture, which is the way you naturally function as a church. Discipleship.org has a free resource on church culture to help you become a disciple-making church, and you can download this for free at discipleship.org slash ebooks. It's a visual introduction to the book Disciple-Making Culture. Download this free resource on church culture to get practical guidance on changing the culture at your church into a church that's focused on disciple-making as something you are, not just something you do. So go to discipleship.org slash ebooks and look for the Disciple-Making Culture visual introduction. The episode for today is called Successful Journey, featuring Greg Ogden and Ralph Rittenhouse. Take a listen. Okay, welcome to uh, turning your church into a disciple-making mission. And just, we we know that this one hour is going to go by very quickly, and so we just want to cover things as quickly as we possibly can and introduce ourselves. So you can see on the screen, uh, my name is Greg Ogden, I'm married to that lovely lady, Lily. Um, I retired from, from pastoral ministry in March of 2012, or as I like to say, I no longer get paid to be a Christian. Uh, so I've been doing a lot of this uh, training and discipleship uh, throughout my pastoral ministry, but now we get to be dedicated to this, uh, partnering with Ralph Rittenhouse uh, in this ministry. And Ralph is a retired pastor as well, so we've logged a lot of years in the pastorate, but especially a lot of years in the whole issue of uh, intentional disciple-making. Uh, you have an outline in front of you. You can see from the cover page that uh, this is kind of a cohesive uh, teaching where we're following a track to try to lay out for you the key steps in the disciple-making process in your church. So if you just get one session, it's going to be limited in terms of uh, what you get. So we're starting with the end in mind. What's the successful discipleship journey look like? Uh, most of this session will be focused around uh, hearing from Pastor Ralph Rittenhouse and his taking a church through a transformational process, uh, implementing uh, the steps that we, we have here. Uh, and then you can see the successful journey consists of three parts, uh, a relational environment. That relational environment is the vehicle uh, to get us where we need to go, and we're going to talk to you about what we call microgroups as the most transformational environment for making disciples. And uh, so that kind of setting there, and so that what's involved in that, and then we'll also include uh, what's the biblical foundations uh, for relational disciple-making, looking at Jesus' model. Lo and behold, Jesus gave us a model of how you make disciples. Lo and behold, we don't follow it, <laughs> so why don't we? But we're going to lay that out. Uh, third session is around transformation. Why do these microgroups create the transformative environment for ch- change in the Holy Spirit's work uh, in our life? What comes together in that environment to really maximize that? We call it the hothouse effect. Uh, this is where accelerated growth that occurs in that environment. Uh, so that is still in the kind of the relational uh, environment, the car. And then the intentional leader, 
the key leader in your church, we like to say, is the leader of a group of four. Uh, everything should support that transformational environment. So it, it's turning the pyramid upside down and taking discipleship to the grassroots level uh, in your church. And so we're looking at uh, the role of the leader there and the steps in the process of forming these discipleship groups. Uh, we'll go through there. And then finally, the reproducible process, uh, which is the GPS, the map, uh, or the curriculum. Uh, I like to say the microgroup is the container. Uh, you need content into the container. And so the container is the environment of transformation, but the biblical content is what you put into that container uh, to make for the transformation. So if you follow all this, these steps out, which we will detail uh, to you as we go, um, that will be a kind of a complete picture. So just so that you know. Uh, and then secondly, uh, some of you may have come across uh, this particular brochure that has a, a barcode on it, or whatever you call those things, a skew code of some sort, uh, that will, if you flash on it, will pop up Joe Global Discipleship Initiative and allow you to put in all your information um, for us so that we can follow up with you. Uh, but what we're covering here today is kind of what we would cover in a one-day uh, discipleship workshop. Uh, if you were to invite us to your church or to your region, uh, you would get basically similar content here. So that's the reason for, for that. So, uh, Ralph, um, partner here, let's uh, have you come up and just introduce yourself briefly, and then we'll I'll give us a, a brief overview uh, before you hear about Ralph's story in terms of his, his leadership. <clears throat> My name is Ralph Rittenhouse. I was born in Miami, Florida. <clears throat> I'm born and raised there, and then uh, joined Campus Crusade staff, was on staff with crew, it's crew now, 14 years, and then uh, went into the church ministry. Uh, began a church in Southern California, about an hour north of LAX, and uh, had a great run there for about 32 years. Uh, then retired four years ago, and Greg and I formed Global Discipleship Initiative, and we've been trying to help churches learn how to do and how to become a disciple-making mission. Uh, that's what happened in our church, and we're having fun sharing it with others. Very good. I'm just going to take about 10 minutes here to do some setup for Ralph. Ralph's the star of the show today and at this first hour, and because uh, he's going to be sharing the story of the transformation of Camarillo Community Church uh, just north of Los Angeles, and so you get a picture of a successful journey. But let's, uh, let me just jump into uh, what I call my duh moment. Uh, any of us pastors had duh moments when you've had the truth that all of a sudden became clear and <laughs> you said, How did, why didn't I see that uh, before? I was passing a church in the Silicon Valley. Uh, this was late 80s, early 90s. Uh, it was all a craze to everybody writing mission statements in those days. Uh, Stephen Covey had come out with his book, Seven Habits of, for Highly Effective People, and he said everybody should have a mission statement. Businesses were writing them, and I was pastoring a church that did not have a mission statement. So I appointed a few elders to work with me uh, to craft a mission statement. Uh, but it was definitely the blind leading the blind. Uh, what does this mission statement look like when you're done? What's it supposed to involve? And we drafted uh, so many different drafts of the mission statement, put it before our elders that uh, I say we deforested much of Northern California with all the paper that we used. And... It was kind of met with ho-hum, you know. And then I had my duh moment. And that was, oh, Jesus has written the mission statement for every church. Why am I working uh, to come up with something different? 
Go and make disciples of all nations. And I love the way C.S. Lewis puts this. He says, the church exists for no other purpose but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christ. If they're not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy missions, and sermons, even the Bible itself, are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. It's even doubtful you know whether the whole universe is created for any other purpose. Pretty powerful statement huh? in terms of what we are to be about. The church exists for no other purpose but to draw men into Christ and make them uh, little Christ and, and be about that. Paul says the same thing in, in Colossians 1, 28 and 29. I'm not going to take the time to and go through the explication of that, but if I were to nominate what Paul's mission statement was, that's the verses I would go to. And he takes the Great Commission and puts it in his own words. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. And how do we know that that was his mission? Because he states his passion in verse 29. Uh, For this I toil with all the energy he mightily inspires within me. So Paul's basically saying the same thing as Jesus in terms of mission, puts it in his own words. Oftentimes churches do the same thing in terms of putting the words of Jesus in, in their own words. So our first GDI value, and you see the list of values on the, I think, second page of your outline, uh, is making disciples is, is uh, disciple making is not the, is, is the church's mission, not just one bullet point uh, of many things that a church does. And oftentimes the whole disciple making mission, I think we would agree, can get lost in the programs of the church. In fact, if you were to ask many disciples, well, what's the evidence that you are a disciple-making church, what would the answer be? Well, we have Bible studies. We preach the Word. Uh, We have small groups. Uh, You would probably name all, and we have service opportunities in the community, all these different things. Uh, And when you start saying it's important to make disciples, what do we do? We will say, well, we've got all these things. Let's pull them in and say, that's the evidence that we are making disciples. When, in fact, that's uh, probably very minimal. I'm going to skip through to a a challenge here. So, what's the need? Um, How would we dramatize the disciple-making need within the context of the church? So, let me put this to you, and I'm going to ask you then to kind of turn to your partner and uh, chat about this for a moment keep you awake after lunch. Um, So suppose you had a a new believer come into your congregation, and they're pretty excited about their new faith, and you're concerned about helping this new believer, you know, move on and grow in the faith, and not only that, to be able to disciple others. Suppose you had this new believer in tow on a Sunday morning, and your people are standing out on the patio mingling like maybe they do in your church, and you walk up to a person on your congregation, and you say, now, Joe, or Jane, has just come to faith in Christ. I want to challenge you to walk with George Jane over the next year and uh, help them become a disciple of Jesus, but your job is not done until they can disciple others. What do you think would be the response of the average person in your church? Talk to your neighbor. What do you think? And if you don't know your neighbor, say hello. So what, uh, what thoughts came to your mind? Let's hear, let's hear some responses. What uh, were the first things that you thought of? 
what might be the response of an average person in your church if they were challenged to disciple somebody else who could then disciple somebody else. Yes? Where do we start at? Where do we start at? What do, what do I do? Uh, what's the plan? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Okay? Where do we start at? Yes? I can't do that. I can't do that. And what, what do you think is behind the I can't do that? I feel ill equipped. I haven't been trained. I haven't, I haven't been discipled myself. You know, somebody might say, how can I disciple somebody else if that has been the case? Okay. I don't feel mature enough. So there's probably some image that people hold in their, in their minds of what are the qualifications, at what level of spirituality or maturity I need to, to be, be able to disciple somebody else. Yeah, maybe one other thought. Yeah. Oh, okay. Sure, okay. You must be from a Baptist church. You said a deacon, deacon church. Uh, no. <laughs> so, yeah, deacon's, deacon's job, pastor's job, if you're from some other kind of church, maybe an elder's job. Um, so, yeah, that's they've got the training and they're gone to seminary or whatever, and so that they should be able to do that. Okay, so... Um, but it does seem like the Great Commission is for everybody. Yeah, okay. Just want to make sure that we're on the same page there. So there's basically, obviously, a huge gap um, between living out the Great Commission and what people feel equipped to do or impassioned to do. Okay, so let, let me add a, a second case study here. Uh, and that's, uh, suppose... You had this same believer show up uh, on a Sunday morning, and uh, they approached. How many how many pastors do we have in the room here? Okay, so they approached one of you as a pastor, and said, "Pastor, uh, you know, I'm new. I'm new to the faith. Um, I really want to grow in my faith, and not only do I want to grow in my faith, I want to be able to help other people do the same. What's your plan for that here at this church?" How many of us would have a pretty good answer for that? Okay. What's, what would be your answer? So I guess what I'm saying is I hope we can help you with a plan. Uh, that's really what we're all about because our, our ministry really ter- tries to answer just one question. How? How do we make disciples? Uh, and this is at least one answer. I'm not, we're not saying we have the, the only answer, obviously, but is an answer to that, that question. So I'm going to invite uh, Pastor Ralph Rittenhouse up uh, to come and share his story. Uh, So you can see our overall picture here. And uh, as Ralph is sharing the story of of the transformation at Camarillo Community Church and a transformation in your life as well, um, what things would you like to ask him about? Make some notes in your mind on your paper there of things that trigger your interest, and then we'll have some Q&A, and then as time permits, we'll look at some of the factors that, uh, and characteristics that changed within the church to become, as it became a disciple-making congregation. How did that affect the totality of the congregation? Ralph? Thanks, Rick. <clears throat> well, as I said, I was born and raised in Miami, Florida, and my dad was a pastor, and my dad died some years ago, and when he died, 
Um, Mom invited the four siblings, myself and my older brother and two sisters, to come to the house. And, you know, anything that we wanted to remember him by to, you know, take with us. And I don't know what the other kids got, but I got his ring. This was his ring from graduation from seminary. And on the ring, it's inscribed Matthew 28, 19, and 20, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And I took that with me because I was a young pastor at that time. And I thought, okay, that's a great reminder. I can't believe I forgot so quickly. Um, I began uh, in Southern California in a little tiny congregation of uh, less than 100 people, and we started putting a church together. And um, <clears throat> within a couple of years, we had built our first building. And the second week into that first building, uh, we had to go to two services because we were using the attraction model. Some of you know what the attraction model You get people in. Anything you can do to get them in the seats. Then we deliver a very strong evangelistic message. We lead them to Christ, and we get them in a small group if we can or something like that, and then we go on to teach them to invite others. Um, and we our church grew, and it grew, and before long we had to add a third service and then a fourth service, and then we built a bigger building. We built a 1,000-seat auditorium with all the cameras and all the goodies and stuff like that, and we saw the thing continue to grow. But it was growing like a balloon. You know, you're puffing it up with air, but inside it's pretty empty. All the churches at a certain time in this country began to do these uh, internal assessments. Maybe you were familiar with Willow Creek in the Reveal uh, study that they did. We did one similar, and we came up with the same conclusions they did. Uh, People liked our service. They liked our buildings. They liked our children's programs. They liked our music. Some even liked the preaching. But they weren't being discipled, and they knew it. And we knew it. We knew there was something that we were, was lacking, but we didn't know what it was. I was coming back from a conference, and I was on an airplane, and I was reading a, an article by John Ortberg in Leadership Journal. Some of you know what Leadership Journal is. It's a uh, journal that a lot of pastors read and <clears throat> church leaders. And, uh, and it, was an, it was an article about discipleship, and I, heard, and I saw in the article Greg Ogden's name mentioned. So when I got off the plane, I Googled Greg Ogden to find out who he was and what he had, and I found Transforming Discipleship, which is this book right here, Transforming Discipleship. I ordered a copy, and I started to read it, and as I was reading, I realized this is pretty good stuff. Um, So I ordered three more copies, and I gave a copy to Bev, and I gave a copy to Jim, and gave a copy to Daryl. Daryl was my evangelism pastor, Jim, our small group's pastor, and Bev was my personal administrative assistant. They read it, and I said, when you finish the book, maybe a week or so, we're going to get together and talk about it. We did get together, we talked about it, and we decided we're going to do an experiment. Uh, Jim, you get a group. Daryl, you get a group. Bev, you get a group. I'll get a group. We won't tell anybody. We're not going to launch a new program because we don't know it. It might not even work. You know, I mean, the book says it will, but we didn't know whether it would or not. So we started our groups. <clears throat> I started my group. Bev started one, Jim, Daryl. And uh, it wasn't probably a month and a half in, and we began to realize something was going on, something was happening. Uh, they got to realize there's homework, probably two and a half, three hours worth of homework. There's a verse to memorize every week. You make a co- sign a covenant when you join the group that you're going to do your homework, you're going to come prepared, you're going to be open and transparent, and you're getting in groups of threes or fours. Um, we call those micro groups, but the idea is it's so small that you can't hide. You know, if you don't do your homework, I know you did. I see your book. You didn't do your homework, you know. Okay? So you hold each other accountable. There's a high level of accountability there, memorizing the verses and doing. And so the guys are doing it. Not only that, and I won't talk to you gals here for a minute. I'll just talk to the guys. How many places can you really be honest? 
You know, I mean, you go to a small group, eight or ten people, and it's, and it's, and it's, um, it's guys and gals together. How honest can you be? I don't want you being honest in my group with my wife sitting there. You know, <laughs> you keep that stuff to yourself, right? Um, you, you can't be honest. You can't be. Tra- but in a group of four like that, honesty comes very quickly. Guys realize this is a safe place. We trust each other. I can be honest. And all of a sudden, you start dealing with real struggles of life, real things, challenges that you're going through. Real stuff comes up, and God begins to work. And the gals, I don't know what you were talking about, but it was working for them too, you know? Um, The guys, and so the groups, we were growing spiritually, and we knew it. And there was a new vibrance that came into our lives, a new excitement about the transformation that God was doing. I was a pastor. I was a pastor's kid. But I'd never experienced anything quite like this before. We got to the end of the year, <clears throat> and it takes about a year to go through the curriculum, but it's not calendar-driven, it's, you know, it's not time-driven, it's transformation-driven. So that's the important thing. If you want to take two or three weeks on one session, you do whatever it takes. If somebody's got an issue in the, in the group, you stop and you talk about it. Um, but about the end of the year, the groups multiplied. Because you sign a covenant when you first sign it. We'll talk about the covenant a little later. You sign a covenant that says, when I get done, I'm going to go out and uh, I'm going to prayerfully consider starting another group, getting three more guys, keeping this multiplication chain going. You've revisited that a couple times during the, during the year. And so by the end, everybody was ready to do it. And my three guys went out and got guys. I went out and got three more guys. You know, our group before became 16. So did Daryl. So did Jim. So did Babs. Second, third year comes along, we do, it happens again. Now you can see where, where this is going and how this is beginning, going to impact the church. Um, we had a gal come home from uh, Romania. She was a mission, had a mission over there. She had a, a camp during the summer for uh, orphan kids in Romania, full of lots of orphans over there. So, and she, would, she was depending on our church to send over people in the summer to help her run this camp. And we did that. We sent money, we sent people, and we were involved in her ministry with her. Well, she comes home one, uh, on a return trip, and uh, she comes into Panera Bread, where my quad met, uh, and she says, oh, I just want to thank you for your church's involvement. And, you know, okay, great. And then <clears throat> uh, Frank McCarthy, first one of the guys in my group, stands up and says, hey, Debbie, you need to do this in Romania. Do what? Well, this discipleship stuff. She sat down. We talked for a little while, and we came up with a, a three-pronged strategy. We'll get this thing translated into Romanian so they can you know, have, have it in their language. We'll get some pastors from over there to come, and we'll teach them how to use it. We'll send them back to Romania with this stuff. And if it works over there, maybe later on we'll go over to Romania and help train some more people over there. That was our strategy. Well, Bev Garcia, <clears throat> who's outside at the table, you'll see her when she's, if you see our materials out there, uh, she calls... Uh, anniversary press on the phone and says, hey, how do we get this stuff translated? They said, you're too late. Somebody did it last year. Well, who did it? Well, some Bible smugglers over there became a, a publishing house after communism and, you know, so gave us a phone number. We call them on the phone. Uh, they saw it in a magazine, thought, we don't have anything like this and translated it. Is anybody using it? Well, not really. For us, it was a confirmation. God was one step ahead of us. Okay, let's go. Part two. You know, let's go. Let's invite the, the pastors. Debbie had been working over there 20 years. She knew a lot of pastors over there, so she invited pastors to come. She just gave them the material and said, if you're interested, let me know. She didn't tell them there was a crazy church in Southern California that was going to pay their ticket to come, you know, because they come for Disneyland, you know, in Southern California. But, so, but she found out, okay, she vetted them, and they were sincerely, and we had 11 pastors to come. 
from Romania. We had a couple other pastors that came from Friesland, <clears throat> wherever that is. <clears throat> you know, somebody else in our church knew somebody. So we, we had 13 pastors that came for this, and we had a ball. You know, they slept in our beds, they, in, in our homes, they ate our food, and, and then we'd take them to the church, and for 10 days we, we had them, and we trained them how to use this stuff. And after it was done, we sent them back to Romania. Um, lo and behold, it wasn't a year, hardly a year, a little over a year later, we get a call from Romania saying, hey, you got to come help. we got all kind of people over here want to learn how to use this stuff. And so we took 13 people over to Romania. On the way home, um, one of the guys is, we're all excited. You know, we had a great time meeting these people. We slept in their beds and ate their food and, you know, had a great time over there and got to know brothers and sisters in Romania. And, but on the trip home, one of the guys says, hey, pastor, what do we do next? I don't know. I don't know what we're doing now. <laughs> we're just kind of following, you know, letting this thing unfold. There's no plan here. But on, by the time we got home, we had decided, okay, let's do a global discipleship summit. We'd call that a Romanian side of stuff. Let's go do a global because our con- our congregation is very multi-ethnic. You know, we had 21 languages reading scripture from our stage one Sunday on a, just on a whim, having a Great Commission Sunday just to see what would happen. And, and the, these were people in our congregation reading in languages from their home, wherever they came from. So we said to our congregation, hey, um, we're going to have a global summit for discipleship. And if you know somebody back in wherever you're coming from, you came from, Give us a name and we'll, we'll try to get them to come over for the thing. Well, they gave us 85 names or something like that. Uh, and so we sent out, you know, we sent out invitations to them. And 53 showed up for our international summit. And they came from <coughs> countries all over the place. And we were just so excited. Again, we fed them. We you know, did the whole thing again and, and had a ball with them, but teaching them how to use this in their cultures and then sent them back to do that. Well, it was at that um, particular summit that I remember Greg was on the stage about ready to speak first session you know kind of thing and he looks over at me and as I'm walking by and says Ralph we need to do some we need to talk about doing some more of this kind of stuff and I just kind of smiled at him because I didn't tell him I know the church I was planning to retire three months later you know I was 70 years old I was going to retire and I said um I wasn't going to tell him if I wanted to tell my church yet. So I didn't say anything, but I knew, you know, okay, we, that might happen. And as soon as I did tell the congregation, I called Greg and said, hey, let's talk more. And we decided to launch Global Discipleship Initiative. The intention being to help other pastors find and learn what I learned in that time. Five years there, and we saw a radical transformation in our church. And here I was a pastor, pastor's son, and finally had learned how to make disciples. You see, I thought, I thought my job was to build the church. Go build a church. And we built a church. We got it full of people. We had all the, all the, we had all the stuff that was supposed to be a successful church. Same thing that you have for a successful NFL franchise. You have a good show on the field, right? You have a lot of people in the stands and you're making budget, whatever it is. You know, well, we were doing all those things. And for most definitions, they'd call that a successful church. But we knew it wasn't. Something was missing. And we finally discovered it. And I discovered that, you know, it was right there on the ring. <laughs> Go and make disciples. But I didn't know how. I thought my job was to build the church. But Jesus says, no, I'll build my church. Matthew 17. Uh, you make disciples, Matthew 28. Um, we got it. I had the roles reversed. Um, 
So we started making disciples, and that was the greatest discovery of my ministry career. And now uh, we get to do this all the time, just going around. So over the five-year period, um, how many do you think were involved in these disciples? How, how large did that get? How did it take over the church? <clears throat> well, I think they said something. We heard this morning a statistic about 16%. If 16% can quack, started as this room started quacking, everybody else would start quacking, you know, <laughs> act like a duck, you know. Um, we got more, far more than that. We, we probably, I don't know, what, 75%? We, the number, I think, of the people that were actually involved in groups uh, by the time I left. And the thing kept going, and I would, they were without a pastor a year and kept growing. So, <laughs> um, But I, I went up to Northern uh, Washington at that time and started doing the same stuff up there and having a great time. You'll hear more about that later too. But um, <clears throat> so yeah, it just and it it never was a program. We 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 never said stuff in the bulletin and trying to encourage people to participate. It, it was all word of mouth, person to person, relational discipleship. Uh, just people bringing in friends. One guy calls and says, Pastor, I got a guy from another church who wants to be in my quad. Can I let him in? Where does he go? Well, he goes to the Lutheran church across town. Sure, let him in. I get a call from the Lutheran pastor. <laughs> Jim Johnson says, hey, I got, you got one of my guys in your group. I said, uh, yeah. He said, can you come to our church and teach us how to do that? We went to the Lutheran church and told them, showed them how to do discipleship groups. Um, in January, I will be with Jim Johnson, this pastor, who is now the denominational leader for this evangelical Lutheran denomination, teaching their denomination leadership how to do this stuff. Um, God just, God had a plan, has a plan, and we just w- watch it work. Okay, uh, let's let's hear some questions to Ralph um, from you. That you, Ralph, you stay up here. <laughs> You're not going anywhere. Uh, what would you like to follow up with intrigue? Yes. So this was something that you all used, and I was going to ask the question, as a, as a pastor, is it better to have one approach, one thing that you do, and you just do that with everybody, or is it better to have like a menu of things you say, this is one of the things that we're doing? Do you have a sense of what would be better? For us, uh, we do. Okay, repeat the question. Is it better to have a menu of different options as far as curriculum or content as opposed to one? Uh, we found it was better for us to use one. Uh, I came from Campus Crusade staff. We use the four spiritual laws as an evangelistic tool. Bill says there are a lot of other ways to do it. This is the way we do it. And we all use the four spiritual laws. We taught people how to use the four spiritual laws. It wasn't the only way. Roman Road's good. There are other ways that you, you can use, but um, it, it, it worked. And it worked well, so we didn't we didn't change. We stuck with the with the discipleship essentials. Yeah, you know, one of the things you're trying to, to do, obviously, is create a culture of disciple making. One of the values of having a common methodology, and uh, and a and sometimes a common curriculum, is that you are now shaping the culture, and people are on the same page with each other. So the cross pollinization that happens in the church with 75, then 100, 125 discipleship groups that are out of a similar nature. People are talking to each other all the time about what's going on in your group. Oh, what's going on in your group? What did you get out of this lesson? What did you get out of that lesson? You're creating a common vocabulary uh, as well. So culture is about common vocabulary, common experience. So um, 
So I think there is a real value of having the same kind of methodology that you, you use and adopt. Um, not that there could be some exceptions to that, but uh, if everybody's kind of doing their own thing, it's hard to recognize what it is in terms of discipleship. And why do we say, that, and we come back to the microgroup experience as the container in which to put the content. Uh, you could use a lot of different content. Uh, obviously, we push ours, but um, there's lots of good stuff out there. But the, the setting in which you're doing it, which, uh, which, where these elements come together, which we'll talk about in a subsequent session, uh, really is the value of, of that. So if you can improve on the transformative setting, <laughs> then yeah, do it. Uh, but I, that's what would be my response to it. Concern is like the, if you're using, I'm at a church that uses a bunch of different things, but you don't know who's been through what and what part of that they've been through. So it becomes a little bit like a quality control yeah. thing for me. I don't know who's been through what or and we're sure. not on the same Sure, sure. I think also you, you, because you don't know what content they're using, it it can become a content-oriented kind of a experience. Okay, check that. We did that book last year. Well, where's the next book? Kind of thing, rather than okay, it's about my life and that's the in relationship with Christ versus a relational mentality. Yeah. 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 Let's have a year of discipleship. A year of discipleship. <laughs> <laughs> Just think about what that means. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. So we're talking about replication groups. Um, so I guess in this process, all four in the quad start their own group. There is no one that does not start. Well, so yeah. we're talking about replication of groups. Let me just repeat. And uh, we have four people in a group, and the idea is that would all replicate. Yeah. And, and so my issue with that in terms of the content is... Well, if only two out of the four replicate a group, then those two in this next phase of the quad are going to go back through the same material. Material. Yeah. Potentially for four years. Yes. I've done my twentieth group. You've done your twentieth group, yeah. but the, same the individual who is in the group who may not start their own group. Yeah, and what what you find is, and, you know, people ask, because you've done so many groups, don't you get tired of it? And the, the answer is no, you know, because I'm watching different people, God work in their lives and change their lives in front of me. And it's just, it's fascinating. It's, it's phenomenal to be able to do that and watch that happen. And the, <clears throat> the fact that I have all the answers in my book, because I've done it already, right? Uh, that cuts down on my prep time. Not only that, when you come up with a better answer than I did, I write yours down. So I've got not only my answers, but I've got your answers now. And the answers for everybody, every group that I go through, I'm adding to my wealth of knowledge in my book. Um, and so I feel competent because competency is a factor. It was mentioned what, what are the you know, barriers for this happening. People don't feel competent. But once they've got an answer book and they've been through it one time, their competency quotient goes way up. I, I, I would say that's a nice problem to, for you to have to solve. <laughs> that people have actually gone through it, not only for themselves, but then through with others. Uh, wouldn't you like to have that problem in your, in your church? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and you can solve it. But well, the reason why we use a, a tool, we call it a transferable tool. So you yeah. need content to transfer to others so that you can use it again. Uh, 
you know, we're not trying to say that this is the end-all and be-all of discipleship, and this is everything you need to know is in this discipleship book. Far from it. I, I think of it as the first stage of a booster rocket, you know. So to get a rocket off the ground uh, into, the, into the atmosphere, you have to have a very strong thrust uh, to begin with, to pull through the gravitational pull of the atmosphere. This, is, this helps you get through the gravitational pull and move people from being consumers to contributors. And you can change that trajectory of people's lives uh, so that they are in the lead position of having to be responsible for other person's spiritual health. That is a massive shift in people's psyche. And that's, uh, that's what we're trying to accomplish uh, with this. And so it's not, you know, it's not everything. There's plenty of other things to know about the Christian life and service and gifts and et cetera. But it's, it's just a starting point. By the time you get to week seven... Or yeah, seven. You're saying next week you're going to lead, okay? And she leads, you know, if it's a girls' group, or he leads, if guys' group, you know. But but you start passing leadership around. So by the time they get to the end, everybody's led several <laughs> times. So they again feel competent because they've learned how to use the material. You ever do it as couples groups? Uh, you ever do it as couples groups? The, yeah, we. It has been done. Um, some of the downside of that is. Typically, in most couples, one is a mouthpiece. You ask him a question and she answers. Or you ask her a question and he answers. Whoever the mouthpiece answers. And so one of them can hide behind the other. And they're not as likely to have that same level of transparency that you'll have with just guys. We say men with men, women with women. For the very reason that Ralph just said, if we want <clears throat> transparency and openness is critical to this experience. We want to apply the Word of God to right where people live, where people struggle. If you're not planting the seeds of the Word in the real lives of people, this is the, the limitations sometimes of Bible studies. You know, you go to a Bible study, accumulate knowledge uh, that is just more information, but it doesn't really change you. Uh, when you open your hearts and lives to each other on the truth of God's Word and a spirit of mutual accountability, you're in the hot house of the Holy Spirit, we say. That's when Life, life transformation This is the one where Greg explains how it all comes together and, and why, why we do what we do. So this is what I usually give to pastors when I'm talking to pastors about it. I'll give them a copy of this, encourage them you know, to read through this. This is the workbook. This is what you do when you're going through the group itself. So uh, leaders, and when we first started, I made everybody that got in my group read this first, you know, kind of thing, because I was dealing with elders and leadership people, and I wanted them to have that background. Uh, but this is the this is the workbook you go through, and with norm, normally you, you're you're just using the workbook. But this for leadership, definitely. Okay, one or two more questions, and, and then I want to make sure that Ralph gets to what were the transformational qualities that he saw happen in the congregation as a result of this. What's your experience been uh, as people that are new coming into a quad with them living out practices like sharing? 
Sure. What does that look like as you begin to leave? Is it something that happens toward the end of the experience in a quad, or is that something you're cultivating very soon after they kind of Yeah. Question is, you know, how quick does it begin to take root and, and live out in the lives of those participating in the group? And we found it doesn't take very long at all before things began to start changing in their life and they realize something's happening. We found, and, I, and I'm going to get to this and, and I'll go ahead and get it now because you asked, uh, one of the, the most zealous evangelists in our church were quad members. Why? Because they were seeing real transformation. They couldn't help but talk about it. They talked to their family, they talked to their friends, they talked to people at work because things were happening and they were getting excited about it. And so they became the evangelists. They were the quickest to begin to share this with other people. Um, volunteerism went way up with quad people. You know, people who said, oh, I don't have time for a quad, I can't do that, but okay. And, they, and then they kind of, you know, reluctantly joined a quad. And then three weeks in, they're volunteering for stuff. And as they get to the end, they not only start one quad, they start two quads. You know, I mean, they, all of a sudden, time expanded for them from somewhere, you know, because their priorities changed. God got a hold of their heart, and transformation was taking place. And um, uh, another thing that we found, and I'm going to, I'm bridging right into it. Well, let's keep on going. I'm going to shift it on, on the screen. Okay. Um, uh, finances. Every church struggles with finances, right? I mean, that's just a normal kind of thing. You got well. I came to the congregation. I said, we, we we've invited we've invited thirteen pastors from other parts of the world to come over for a discipleship thing. We need forty five. This is an unbudgeted item. We need forty five thousand dollars to get tickets and all this kind of stuff. In two weeks, we had forty five thousand dollars. When we did the global summit, we needed $85,000. Again, in two weeks, we had $85,000. And they didn't stop giving it $85,000. They gave $112,000. And we spent every penny <laughs> doing the thing, you know. And it became, and, and then my, uh, so my administrative pastor said, hey, we need to pay off our building. Can, you think we can do it this year? I said, why not? So we paid off our building, a multi-million dollar building that year. Uh, I mean, they became the givers, because transformation had really taken place and they were buying in to the primary purpose of the church, which was making disciples. Other questions? Get to the rest of my things over here if you'll keep it going. <laughs> I have multiple questions, but I'll ask one and then somebody else can ask one. If we have time, I'll get to another one. So I've heard uh, different people say, who do you start this with? Great. And some say you should start with mature Christian leaders who are ready to go. Got it. So okay. they can multiply quicker than... And I've heard others say, there you're no, talking you, like a pastor now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I've heard others say, no, you need to go with people who need it the most. Yeah. And start yeah. there. So what, what would you Where say? do you go? Good question. Who do you start with in your group? Do you start with mature believers or do you start with newbie believers? Well, uh, I'm the senior pastor and I'm thinking, okay, I want this replicated. I want to see if it's going to work. So I chose two elders and one soon-to-be elder uh, for my group, and they replicated immediately, and that was great. Daryl, my evangelism pastor, chose newbies because he's leading all these people to Christ all the time, and they're brand-new believers. So he got newbies in his group. My group multiplied very quickly. His group, he took them to Burger Barn on Saturday morning, and he started a group at his table. He started a group at his table, and Daryl was right there to kind of oversee them and shepherd them through this, this new venture for the new believers, you know. And some of the new believers had to go through twice 
in order to come to that level of confidence that they could actually do. So it just depends on, on, on your objective there. For me, I wanted to see it replicate quickly. I got uh, strong believers that I could help and get, teach them a methodology that they could use. But you're going to get to that place where you're going to be inviting new people in, and that's okay. And go ahead. Well, it, you got something to share. Well, just the, it's, it's a slow process, right? So we're not, this is no instantaneous solutions to a church. You have to think out three to five years. It does relate somewhat to who you choose first because you want to have some return on your investment so people are more stable in your community, you know, fairly solid in the faith. Uh, sometimes those who are more of the, the traditional leaders in the church may not be the best ones because they could uh, actually be more resistant uh, to this, this kind of thing. So um, I don't know that there is any magical answer to that question in terms of exactly who you, who you start with, uh, but you want to lay a solid foundation, as Ralph said, with some key leaders that can have a good chance of replicating because you want to get this, the, the journey started. And I have to confess, when we first were starting, we didn't know how, long, how far this thing was going to go. And so we, we started with some mature believers, but then we began, as it began to develop, I thought, you know, this is, this is something, this is what we should be doing. You know, this is what, what church should be about. So now we started targeting all of our key, we, we, one of our prime objectives one year was to get all the core through the discipleship essentials. We wanted all of our core people, whatever role they were playing in the church, to have this under their belt. And so that it became a part of their ministries. But, you know, so there's no quick or easy answer to these things. Everybody has to do it as God's showing you in your situation. And, you know, I don't want my answers to necessarily be your answers. And there's a a sort of a critical unspoken element here that you probably have already picked up. If you want to see transformation of your church into a disciple-making congregation, the senior leader has to be the leader of disciple-making. Talk about that story uh, <laughs> yeah. when the de- staff delegated back to you that yeah. leadership role. <laughs> we're, we're at our annual staff retreat, which in January, we had several, but the, the, the big one was January, where we do our look back at the year and evaluate everything that happened now, look ahead to the new year and set all your new prime objectives and stuff like that. And we decided as a staff that discipleship was going to become one of our prime, obje- one of our prime objectives. You know, <laughs> you should be the yet. prime you, but We were just getting it, so it was one of our prime objectives. And then they said, okay, who's going to be the point person on that? The room got real silent because I had just given them an article out of the leadership journal talking about leadership in the church, and it says, Jesus did not delegate discipleship, and neither can the senior pastor. <laughs> you can't give it to your key layman or your key deacon or elder. Or you got to be the point person. And their all eyes came back to me. So I said, okay, okay, I give up. I'm the, I'm, the, I'm the point person. And I became the point spokesman. Now, then I recruited my small group's pastor to t- do most of the work, but I, you know, at least I was the face on the, on the thing. You had a question back there. Yes. Okay, the question is, question is what, what happens when you run into resistance? People in the congregation who are late adopters, who don't jump on the first bandwagon. Or have their own way of doing it. Or have their own way of doing it. And I say, you know, uh, my wife, <laughs> she's seen me do so many programs, you know, and lost so many things. She figures this is just a phase. He'll get, he'll get over it. Two years later, two years later, she finally, you know, gets her quad, you know, and realizes that we were serious about this. But <clears throat> Late adopters, yeah, they will be there. And I, I love to use an illustration. I use it with somebody as they were coming in today. But uh, the 
apple farm in Washington, in, in Berling, Bellingham. Um, Greg came up for a conference we were doing up there, and we went to the apple farm. We're just showing them around. Some things happen in northern Washington. They grow apples. So we'd go to the apple farm, and out on the counter, they've got apples. And here's a Jonathan, and here's a Honeycrisp, and here's a you know Honeygold or whatever, and here's an Oran apple. I tasted all these others. But I'd never tasted an orange apple. And they, they were cutting them up and let you taste them, you know, so you could see what the, which one you like. I like the orange apple was the best. So I said to the guy, I said, hey, I don't want that apple. I want the tree. You know, I grow apple trees up there. I want the tree. Where do I get an orange apple tree? So he calls down to the nursery and they say, well, we don't. We can't yank one up and give it to him. We don't sell trees. We just sell the apples. said, well, have them try and name a couple nurseries. Well, <clears throat> Later, we're in a conference, and somebody asked a similar question. What do you do when some people don't? What, I think their question was, what if you're doing this, and your layperson and your pastor hasn't jumped on board yet? They're resistant somehow. What do you do? And my, my thought was, it just came to me like that. I said, don't try to sell him an apple tree until he tastes the fruit. Start a group. Start one group and let it grow. And then let him see the fruit, and he'll he'll come back and want to buy the tree. Um, that's what we do for late adopters. If they're resistant, don't worry about it. Let the Holy Spirit do the work. Don't try to convince them. Don't try to turn twist their arm. Just let the Holy Spirit, let them see the fruit, taste the fruit, and then see what happens. And when you say late adopters, for instance, your wife was she she was a late adopter starting a group or a late adopter in even being a part of a group? We did, the question was, my wife, uh, was she a, a late adopter in starting a group or just being in a group? And it brings up a, another key, key question there. Does a person have to go through a group before they can start a group? Well, I didn't. <laughs> you know, I just read the book and then I started a group and so did the other four of us. So there were certain key leaders that we asked to start groups, but I had one guy who was an elder <clears throat> who had been a navigator for years, one-on-one, been discipled. He knew, I, had, I asked him to start a group. He didn't do it. He couldn't do it. So I invited him into mine. Uh, and then he gets started a group. <laughs> After that, he started a group. But um, some people can start one uh, by themselves, and typically in the church we're in now, if somebody wants to do that, or if we feel like somebody's ready and they, they're stepping up for that, we put somebody alongside of them that has been through a group or that's in a group that can kind of coach them through. So we assign a coach to them to make sure if they run into a hard spot, you know, they can deal with it. We had, in the first church we did, we had somebody come up and want to start a group, been around for a long time, you know, in the church forever, you know, walk with, okay, start your group. He started a group. It was a disaster. It was a disaster. I had to rescue people from his group and put them in other groups because it became a, a time of just uh, negative on the church, negative on leadership. It just it became time where everybody was sharing the wrong kind. It just didn't work for whatever reason. Um, so we, you know, so that can be dangerous, uh, particularly if you don't have a coach. Anything. I was going to ask about that. It's a good okay, you want a little more on the coaching part of it? Yeah. Yeah, that's, a, that's another part of when the thing begins to grow. And we just learned this as we watched it happen. It started growing. We started seeing other people doing groups. And all of a sudden we realized, wait a minute, you know, where's some structure to this? Can we, how do we help? Not that we want to control, but how do we help? Um, 
And so we, we set up a coaching system where we took people out of the <clears throat> initial groups, people that we felt confident in, and assigned them to coach young, young leaders. Always the guy who leads a group and his people go out to start groups, he's almost an automatic coach anyway, right? Um, but you may have to coach him in coaching a, a little bit. So you, you do some of that. Question in the back. Yeah, I don't. The question is, what about the people who maybe haven't been discipled, but they they come and they just sort of naturally do it? <clears throat> sure, and he'd never been discipled, but he figured it out. And and Jesus gives us a model, so there is a model for us to follow. Uh, we just ha- it takes a little more <clears throat> concentration, I think, and focus to figure it out on your own. What Greg has done is he's put some how tos together, captured some of the basic principles to help us be able to do it. I read the book, started a group, and it worked. Yeah, I, I would say I would fit myself into the category of the person <laughs> you're talking about. Yeah, when you adopt the value of knowing that you are to disciple others, then you start with something. Uh, you start with experimenting. You know, I, I did the one-on-one discipleship model for a long period of time because that's what I thought was the definition of discipling. I didn't know exactly what to do in the content of those relationships, but as I did it, I sort of made up things as I went <laughs> uh, because I knew that that's what I was supposed to do in terms of if I, if I was going to have an influence on others, then I had to spend time with them, I had to invest in their lives. Uh, there was no shortcut uh, to, to impact. But if you're, if you're going in a direction, uh, then God can steer you and guide you. And I'm sure that's what happened to Dawson Trotman. He had the intention. Uh, of, of discipling, and he then filled in, and the Lord filled in the process uh, as he went, and that same thing happened to me. Uh, so it just so happened that I sort of stumbled on the groups of three or four because uh, I was doing a doctoral degree on, with some curriculum that was a, kind of the early foundations of the discipleship essentials, and I experimented with one-on-one, a group of three, and a group of ten, and I compared the experiences to them, and the, the whole group of three was just like an eye-opener, like, Wow. I, I, I told you about my duh moment in ministry. Well, this was my aha moment <laughs> in ministry. Uh, so it was just doing it. So if you have the intention, I think then the Lord guides you in that process. That would be my response. Yeah. David? You might think about it with the fact that you said you had three. Who were Jesus's three? Oh, uh, maybe Henry, <laughs> George, and <laughs> Frank. Frank, I think. Was yeah. that what it was? Yeah, but I mean, he had oh. 12. Yeah, but, but then he had three. He had three. Had three. Yeah. yeah, that was the initial quad, Jesus, yeah. Peter, James, and John. You know, so there's the first, first quad for sure. Um, yeah. yeah. You wanted to follow up on your question? Oh. Or comment? Because he said that in your church, you only have one Jesus didn't delegate discipleship. Was what he was saying? Well, that Jesus didn't delegate discipleship. Uh, I got it out of a, a, a an article in Leadership Journal, but it's uh, but as I check the scriptures, I feel see that's what he did. You know, he didn't delegate it; he did it. And what I saw pastors doing was handing it off to a paid staff member and saying, "Okay, this guy I preach, this guy leads discipleship." Um,
You, yeah. des- you, you demonstrate you it. it. Pastor has to, and there are churches that don't do that. You know, there are pastors that say, all I do is preach. Somebody else does that. But we find if you want to build a disciple-making culture, the key pastor, the you know, lead pastor has to be involved. It's not a ton of reading. It's not a lot, yeah. But, but I found the guys that just weren't big readers, they struggled sometimes with staying up with it. It seems like when I was doing that one-on-one and not in a group, it seems yeah. like the group might provide a little better, a little, a better atmosphere. Yeah. yeah. yeah Reinforcement. There, the question is, you know, and the way I'm rephasing your question, if this isn't right, correct me, but is there a, is there a difference in the people and their ability to handle the material? Some people... This is, you know, give him credit. He's got, I, I say it's at least freshman college level stuff, right, in, in this, this particular curriculum. Uh, we can dumb it down, but it's, you know, that's, that's about the it's level a, it's, it's written. It's a graduate degree in Nepal, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you, you do need to be aware of, when we tried to use it with high school and college students, college students didn't have a problem. High school students, there were some who could handle it. Um, some who it was just a little too much for. Uh, we've talked about somebody doing a high school version of it one day, but nobody's stepped up to do that. But. Yeah, keep making that challenge. <laughs> uh, looking at our time, and I want to be faithful to your desires to, I don't know why you would want to go on to another workshop beyond, beyond this one, but, you know, uh, obviously I have the freedom to do that. Um, but I want to introduce uh, our, our, our national director in Nepal, uh, Pradeep Cha. Uh, Pradeep happened to be in Chicago with a couple of days free, and we said, get on down here, uh, join us for this, for this conference. I know Pradeep would love to chat with you about what's the disciple-making efforts going on in, in Nepal. As, he is our first national director. We have three uh, countries now where we have national directors, and uh, Pradeep's just been a, a joy to, to me. Hindu convert, came to faith in Christ at age 18, got thrown out of his family as what happens in those Situation. So, if you'd like to ask him about his story, he, I'm sure he would be delighted to tell you. Um, so, thank you, Pretty, for for coming here. Uh, just a couple of housekeeping things. Uh, we'd love to capture information from you if you'd be willing to fill out the GDI information interest sheet. Um, there's details there that are obvious, and then interest newsletter, online cohort. We started our first online training uh, with cohort of four people meeting once a month. Uh, going through the same kind of content. Uh, We have 18 sessions over two years to lead you through a process. It's been an absolutely fabulous experience this year. So if there's any interest in joining a group that would help you stay focused on the transition and leadership that you are making in your church, that's what this is all about. There's information I have up here about that on our table. If you came in that door and didn't realize that our table's on this side, uh, all of our resources are outside this door to the right. Um, so, uh, thank you for coming. And then we have this information about a one-day workshop that uh, would could you could use in your area or your church. And so, feel free to pick that information up either up here or uh, out on the table. But that brings us, I think, to one forty-five on the dot. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. Make sure to check out and download for free the visual primer for the book Disciple Making Culture. 
You can download this at discipleship.org/ebooks. Until next time.